Let us approach the author of our text in prayer. Lord our God, I, I offer up this morning thanks not merely for the things that you are, but the things that you do. The verbs. I thank you that those verbs are transitive, that they have objects, and that we are those objects. I pray, Lord, that you will help me make this text clear and reveal the power that already lies within it. Plow up consciences, minds, and hearts. Make yourself known and encourage and feed your people. Give life, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I would like to ask for a little audience participation, but there's a problem with that. You're not the audience. Who is? Our audience here is God. But as fellow worshipers, I'd like to ask you a few questions. We'll show hands here. How many people in this room have prayed for someone sick and they died anyway? How many in this room have prayed for the salvation, the conversion of a loved one or a friend, and they went on decade after decade in their apostasy? How many of you have had other prayer concerns of very long standing, the fulfillment of which would apparently bring great glory to God? But as far as you could tell, you were praying to a brass heaven. Have you been there? Once I asked a man how he was doing. He said, I'm doing okay. No point in complaining. Nobody's listening anyway. This text is a refutation of that sentiment. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for their help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. A little about context here. The first two chapters of the book of Exodus fulfill one of the promises that God made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 15. Verse 13 reads as follows, Then the Lord God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So the Israelites have been told exactly what was going to happen. They've been told exactly how long it's going to last, but four hundred years... That's an awfully long time to nourish a tradition of hope and patience. The bondage of Egypt was the first of two great periods of suffering in Israelite history. The later one, the exile, is roughly a thousand years down the road. And there are two differences that we need to look at for just a minute between these two periods of suffering. Two very obvious differences. First, the exile. 
is much, much shorter. It lasts only 70 years, quite long enough, thank you very much, but nothing compared to the 400 years of the bondage. The second is more important. The exile is directly connected by God to Israel's sin and idolatry. It's very clearly intended to be understood as a specific punishment for specific sins. Indeed, the warnings about the exile frequently offer options on how to avoid the exile by being faithful to the covenant. You could get out of this if you really tried. Now, nobody is going to argue that the Israel of the bondage in Egypt was without sin. Nobody would say that. There was plenty of idolatry, plenty of immorality, plenty of violence, plenty of skullduggery and con artistry, plenty to justify the bondage in Egypt as a punishment. You could make that case, but God doesn't. God, in predicting the sojourn in Egypt, does not in any way link that to Israel's sin, which I find fascinating. He says, he doesn't say, don't do this or else. Or he doesn't say, do do this or else. He simply says, this going to happen. So while the victims of the suffering are not innocent per se, this is not judicial suffering identified by God as his response to specific sin. It is in that sense the suffering of innocence. And it's the bigger one. It's also the most intense. You, know, you could go make a good living in exile. These people had long and horrifying careers in brick manufacture. It was not a happy and satisfying period. Now, nothing in the narrative brings out the innocence of this suffering more clearly than the slaughter of the babies that began the book of Exodus. And our context here, I'm not spending a lot of time on Moses, though he did write the thing. I'm spending some time on some words that are of great value to us. The slaughter out of which Moses was rescued in his infancy demonstrates that this period of suffering is intended to be understood not as judicial. It is innocent suffering prophesied and ordained by God. And that makes us itch. How could a good, righteous God bring innocent suffering on innocent people, for that long especially? How could that happen? What could be going on there? The entire burden of the Exodus narrative is that the suffering in Egypt, though woven into the providence of a just and holy God, is an unjust suffering. God is not culpable, but He is sovereign in the unjust suffering of the Israel. And this means that for the Israelites, their suffering is ethically mysterious. Unlike the thief on the cross, who was led to repentance by the sight of his own sin, Israel is Job. Israel is unable to view its suffering through the lens of its sin. Israel's left to wonder about the justice of God. A cry of abandonment rises from the mud pits of Egypt. And as the sun burns down on the Israelites and hardens their hearts into bricks of despair, there is no evidence that it will ever be otherwise except what? 
What is the only evidence that this will ever end? God's promise. And from that we can see the soul of prayer is in what we can't see. The things that are happening that we don't know about. That's where the glory of prayer is. I want to spend some time, I don't want to try to expound the whole text. If I were, if I were trying to preach my way through Exodus, uh, which I was trying to do when COVID came and I got cut off, but if I, were, if I were going to preach my way through Exodus, I'd handle this text very, very differently. But I want to do one thing with it. I want to look at the verbs. Because the verbs tell us what people and what God is doing. It's very interesting and very applicable what's going on here. First, the human verbs. I chose this tiny little text because the verbs here have so much application to our walk of prayer. Our walk of prayer with God in times of prolonged crisis. Anybody ever been in a crisis for a long time? Like years. Something that you woke up to every day. An opponent, an enemy that you had to deal with. Whether it was a person or a situation. How about 400 years of slavery? There are human verbs that describe the heart condition of the people of God. People very much like us. And there are divine verbs that describe the actions of God. The same God who does the same verbs to us. So let's look at the human verbs. The first thing we hear in verse 23 is that the king of Egypt, first verb, died. Now, you know why this fact is important? This fact is really, really important precisely because it's not important. And why is it not important? It's important because it's not important because the death of the king doesn't do anybody any good. The death of the king doesn't change any situation at all. Okay, it's like... The 13th Amendment ending slavery, which was immediately replaced by Jim Crow. Here's old boss, here's new boss, seem like the old boss. Things that ought to change the situation, things that look like they would change the situation, make zero difference. Does anybody get a little frustrated when something like that happens? You wait and wait and wait for a major development. The major development comes. Now what? No results? That's worse than if nothing happened. Hope deferred makes the heart sick is what that is. The death of the king makes no difference. The suffering continues as it has for centuries. I mean, think about that. How many times in your life have you had some huge problem and you said everything in life would be so much better if this one thing went away? It goes away. Nothing happens. That's the situation here, and that's how we get to our human verbs, the first of which is groaned. The word here means to sigh or to groan. It indicates a mixture of physical pain and emotional grief or loss. To give you an idea of the kind of freight this word carries, it is no accident at all that this word shows up six times in five chapters in guess what book? Lamentations. 
That word is perfectly at home in a book with the title Lamentations. And one of the reasons I wanted to explore this text is I was kind of want, helping to help, uh, wanting to help Brian round off his work in the Psalms by going back into a prayer life in general, which is what the Psalms are, and dealing with this concept of lamentation and what's going on behind the scenes in lamentation. This is a word that's right out of that tradition. The next word is a little different. You see, this word, this verb for lamentation, this verb for sighing or groaning, it conveys this multifaceted agony. It's steeped in abject despair. This groaning is not, repeat not, re-repeat not an act of prayer. It is a cry into darkness every bit as it's a cry out of darkness. It's a surrender to circumstances. I give up. All is lost. Then you get cried out, which is a different word entirely. Unlike the groaning, this word is not a mere cry for pain. It's not like, ouch. It's a cry for help. It begins to approach the idea of real prayer. The other aspect of the word is that it is not an individual word. It is a corporate word. It has to do with people assembled together in a shared desperation. Indeed, it is a summons to gather as a body and present their desperation to God together. So the first verb is given over entirely to despair. The second verb dares to ask, is there hope? And in that spirit, not of hope or faith, but in a quest for hope or faith, the cry came up to God. Here again, there's a mixture between mere undirected noises of agony and prayerful seeking of aid. And it's the whole howl of noise, all of it together, individual and corporate, prayer intended and prayer unintended, that rises up to God. Here's the point. None of it, not a word, not a cry, not a groan, not a sigh, bounces off the ceiling. It goes all the way up to God. Which brings us to the divine verbs. For 400 years, the Israelites have opened each day in their prayer closet and have had their quiet time with God. They've gathered their families over meager meals and they've sought His face in those families. They were faithful at Wednesday night prayer meeting. They went to church every Sunday. They grumbled under the lash and sweated faster than they could drink and they raised their children and buried their dead so, so many dead all without the slightest evidence that there was a just and mighty hand in the heavens. But all the while, divine verbs, these things have been going on from eternity past. None of the things that I'm going to describe ever started. And that's what Moses understands from the vantage point of after the Exodus. Having been informed, now I can let the cat out of the bag and tell you everything that was going on. This is what they didn't know. This is what you don't know. When you pray for your friends and they die. This is what you don't know and what you don't see. And when I was exploring this text, 
Because I've had those experiences too. I live in those experiences. I know what it's like to feel like you're praying to a brass heaven. And these verbs lit me up to discover what God was doing where I can't see. And you know what I can't see? A lot! Back to middle, middle, middle school grammar class. All of the divine verbs in this passage are transitive. Okay, Neil, what does transitive mean? That means that they do something to something. They have direct objects. The divine verbs are going somewhere. They move. They act. They crackle with accomplishment. And this was not true with the, ver with the human verbs. The human verbs don't have direct objects. They simply express what the situation is. And in this context, they convey powerlessness in contrast to God's verbs of power and action. So what's the, what's the first of these divine verbs? Verse 24, And God heard their groaning. That verb to hear shows up in another interesting place a little later in the Scripture. When a woman named Hannah who apparently has got some mileage on her, finally, after many, many years of prayer, gets a baby. What does Hannah name that baby? Does anybody remember? Samuel, Shamuel, God hears. God was paying attention to my prayer all those years. He was listening. The verb is heard. It does not simply imply a receipt of an audio signal. It means to pay attention. It means to give heed. The person listening to your conversation while looking at his cell phone is not hearing. He's not doing this verb. Interestingly, one aspect of the meaning of this word, and it's kind of strange for it to mean this when applied to God, is to obey. That's involved in this word. Now, we usually think of obedience as going from God to man rather than from man to God. But the idea here is that God's hearing is in preparation for God's action. He's not subservient. He's responsive. He's not subservient. He's responsive. Today, you're going to go home and you're going to address that God in prayer. You don't for a minute believe you're his boss telling him what to do. Bossing him around, he's got to obey you. But don't you hope that this very much non-subservient God is responsive? Well, that's what we hear in this verb. He's responsive. He's listening. There's somebody up there. How much difference does that make? That there's somebody up there who is responsive. Now what is it that God hears? He hears the groaning. The groaning, the whole of it. The part of the human cry that isn't intended as prayer. The noise of despair and abandonment. Don't get me wrong, he actually hears it all. But what Moses points out in particular is that he hears what you didn't intend to say to him. He hears the, the sighs and groaning of pain as you experience the misery before you seek His aid. 
before you form a petition and launch it up to heaven, your agony has in and of itself penetrated that barrier ahead of you. Your pain is already in heaven. The noise of its agony has already captured the attention of your infinitely free God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What's the next verb? And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In this context, remember is not an academic word. It's a covenant word. It's an aspect of covenantal duty. And remember that God, who has no duties to anyone, bound himself with duties by entering into covenant. There are things he must do, not because somebody's above him making him do it, but because he made promises and he has integrity. And out of the internal necessity of his character, he will keep those promises. That aspect of the character of God is referred to in this text as remember. The thing remembered is the covenant. The promises God has made. Remember here means to call to mind, to meditate on, to keep a promise. And we saw it this way when God made his covenant with Noah. Genesis chapter 9 verse 15. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Now, quick thought experiment here. God sends another rainstorm after the flood. Something comparable to Baton Rouge 2016, which is a serious, serious rainstorm. Now here's what did not happen. God did not stand in the heavens with his 72nd giant bucket ready to pour out flooding on the entire earth, see the rainbow over Baton Rouge and say, oops, I, I, I better quit. That's not the way that went down. God does not meet, need reminders because he has forgotten. He posts reminders because he remembers. He makes the clarity of his character visible in things like the sacrament, tokens of his promises. He issues his promise in the form of a promise to abide by the terms of the covenant, to remember. The word appears many, many times in the Old Testament as a reminder that God keeps promises. A little later, after reminding Moses of his promises to Abraham in Exodus 6, when the, when the whole series of plagues is about to come down on poor Pharaoh's head. God says this, Moreover, I have heard the groaning, heard again, I have heard the groaning of my people Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And that's bad for Pharaoh. I have remembered my covenant, and I'm going to keep some promises. Uh, my my father-in-law used to have a, an interesting sense of humor, it was not always a kind or pleasant sense of humor. 
And sometimes when I would stand up to leave a room he occupied and I would say, I'll be back in a few minutes, he would reply, is that a threat or a promise? In God's case, it's both. In this case, he's going to keep his promises to his people, which means Pharaoh is in a heap of trouble. And then a little later, after the plagues, as Israelites are leaving Egypt, Moses says, Exodus 13, 3, Moses said to the people, remember this day. It's Passover day. Remember this day, Exodus day, in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall you eat. Why not? Because that's a covenant obligation. That's a promise you vowed to keep. You remember to keep your promises to God. Those promises have meaning. They deliver covenantal goods. They are an exchange of fidelity between God and man. They're not to be broken. Remember. So here in Exodus 2, Moses presents covenantal memory as an aspect of God's character that comforts, that encourages those of us who feel like we pray to that brass heaven. God remembers. Promises grow toward their fulfillment. They grow like, like, uh, like potatoes, underground, unseen, yet ripening. And God remembers exactly where He planted every single potato seed. And He means to nourish us with those potatoes. What's the next verb? God saw the people of Israel. Now, just like hearing is more than a vibrating eardrum, seeing is more than a stimulated octave nerve. More even than observation. Again, this kind of seeing is responsive. This is the seeing of a father who sees his child suffering, or maybe the, father, the, suffer, the, the sight of a father who sees his child running out to the highway or getting ready to get eaten by a bear. This is, the, this is suffering that's responsive to crisis. Okay, seeing that's responsive to crisis. Seeing that's about to do something. The New Living Translation is not really one of my favorite versions, but it has a moment of useful insight here with this rendering of the verse. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. That's not entirely faithful to the Hebrew, but it does convey the idea of a connection between the vision of God, how can he not see, he's omniscient, and the action of God. There's no concern here that you can ever bring to God that he doesn't already see. Now there's nobody in this room who doesn't know that. And there's nobody in this room who doesn't forget that. And then we've got one more verb. This is the sweet one. And God knew And again, we are not referring to a bare intellectual awareness of fact. Here we have an intimate participation in our sufferings. It's right there in the middle of it. Every crack of the lash was felt 
by the back of God. Every degree of the desert heat bit into the being of God because he was with us. He was with his people. Paul's thinking on this issue is absolutely transformative as he considers Christ's suffering for our atonement. Now, the Pauline doctrine of the atonement is forensic from beginning to end. It deals with legal categories. It has that import, it has that structure, and that's necessary. But there's a moment when Paul sets aside legal thinking. He sets aside things like imputation. He sets aside things like uh, righteousness that comes from faith. In the midst of that discussion, he deals with a certain psychological aspect of the cross. Christ on the cross does suffer in our place. And all of the great forensic doctrines that pour out of that, about the atonement, about imputation, that, that, that flows forth out of his dying and suffering in our place. And we must never negate that, but he also suffers with us. What does Emmanuel mean? The fundamental statement of the purpose of the incarnation. God with us. That's what's going on. And he suffers with us. And all of suffering is transformed because we are never again alone. There is in our pain a trysting place with the lover of our soul. Therefore, in Philippians 3, verse 10, Paul describes the goal of his life. He says that I may know him. And again, not just have some data. Know in a life-giving way. Know in a way that plunges into his being and drinks of his substance and is remade by the contact. Know like that. That I may know him, this kind of intimacy, and experience the power of his resurrection. Again, the, the theme of new life given to me by an encounter with and union with the person of God in the incarnation. And then here, that I may know the power of his resurrection and know the fellowship of his sufferings. Being made like him in his death. What's going on there? Now, when I am in pain, Pauline thought has taught me to see that pain in terms of a participation in the crucifixion of Christ, in the humiliation of Christ. I am in that event, and the benefits of that event are infused into me by the fellowship, the koinonia that I have with the fellowship of his suffering. Now, Moses has not gotten quite that advanced theologically, but all those realities are latent in these verbs. All those, those realities of participating in the suffering of Christ and having that suffering applied to you in a saving way, all of that theology is latent here in Exodus. It's, all, it's true before it's revealed. God's presence in our prayer is a subset and a foreshadowing of God's presence in our suffering in the Pauline sense. And He makes Himself ours. And whatever horrors we may endure, we know that He's not a spectator. 
He's a participant. And He participates with us. So when you pray out of your agony, His arms are around you and His voice says, I know. I am with cross, with Christ on the cross, which reconciles me to God. There He knows me, and I know Him. There the knowledge of God, being known by God and knowing God, gives life and joy and unspeakable and full of glory to me. Again, the Israelites did not have this Pauline insight. They struggled and they died in the mud pits under a silent sky. But all the while, God knew. What a difference this makes. God knew. In every grief, God knew. Mothers, when your little boy falls and skins his knee and he's crying and you pick him up, what's the first thing you say? I know. Many centuries later, God was describing another period of great suffering that was to befall His covenant people. His prophet Isaiah was bringing news of an exile, an exile of judgment on God's people for their idolatry. Yet even though this period would bring the loss of everything Israel valued, Isaiah encourages these people with promises of restoration, promises of reconciliation with God. Even before the exile begins, Isaiah is saying, you're going to get this punishment because you've done these things, but it's going to end. And it's going to end gloriously. And he's describing these glories. And there's one particular description of his exquisite beauty in Isaiah 49. After the description, he pauses for a moment. And he takes the part of the people of God, the people who are complaining in, under the exile. And the people are saying this. They're looking at the promises of God. And they're looking at the Babylonian handcuffs. And they're trying to reconcile that cognitive dissonance. And they're saying, But Zion says, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And they could just as easily be Psalm 13. How long will you forget me, O Lord God? Or they could be Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God's answer. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on him, on the son of her womb? Yes. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Write something on your hands, I defy you to forget it. And you're not even anything like omniscient. His name from the palms, my name from the palms of his hands, eternity shall not erase. Engraved on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yet I to the end shall endure. As sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure. The glorified spirits in heaven. That's Augustus Top Lady, Rock of Ages, remember him? 
The darkness of your life may deepen. It may lengthen. It may hurt. But God hears. God remembers. God sees. And God knows. Lord God, I ask you to work this comfort into the hearts of these your praying people. I ask you to remind them moment by moment by moment that you hear, remember, see, and know and that there is deeper comfort in that than anything we can imagine. Act for the revelation of your glory in your hearing, remembering, seeing, and knowing. In Jesus' name, amen.